listener production. Hi, and welcome back to Broadsheet Around Town Summer Series. I'm Emma Joyce, Broadsheet's Features Editor, and every week we've been chatting to all sorts of interesting people on our two podcasts. I host the Sydney one, and our editorial director, Katja Vactal, hosts Melbourne's. In this special episode, we're bringing together some of our favourite conversations across the cities to share snippets of the ones that revealed big ideas. Whether it's the first Australian hospo business offering their team the option to condense their week and do 38 hours in four days, or a new startup offering mental health workshops and advice for dealing with burnout. We'll hear from Nomad's executive chef, Jackie Chalinor, about bringing a 140-seater restaurant to a beautiful heritage space in Melbourne. Fishbowl's Nick Pestalozzi on launching a more affordable street food menu to meet Cozy Lives times. And men's skincare business owner, Hunter Johnson, shares how he's subverting the dangerous script of masculinity with his brand Stuff. First up, we're throwing back to an episode on the new look Boudemonde in Melbourne. Broadsheet's Kachavactyl, Michael Harry and Nick Connellan discuss how the restaurant has adapted to our love of social media. Maybe it's not the first thing you think about when designing a restaurant, but taking photos of delicious food is how we show our appreciation for it. And we love that Voodamond is thinking about their customer experience in this way. Now, when you walk in, of course, it's all very calm. There's an open kitchen, but it's not very, yes, chefy. It's very much like... Like dancers on a stage. Yes, it's a little ballet scene happening in the centre of the room when you've got Hugh Allen, who is the executive chef there. And a massive babe, let's be honest. The yeah. hair. It's he's, like he's Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. How? And he's, and he's young. He's he, about 30. Yeah, he's a star chef and someone who also I think has been really keen to make sure that Voodemont didn't stay in the past. And I think he was very focused on making sure that these changes are not just, again, to the menu, which we'll talk about, but that the room feels like it was polished and made more contemporary. But they also paid a lot of attention to the lighting and the way the food is going to be photographed by people and put on social media, which I thought was it was pretty clever because you can create these beautiful works of art in the kitchen and they go out to a table and this happens all over Melbourne and all over the world and you take a photo, which a lot of people want to do. And Everyone it goes does. online and mm. it just doesn't capture just how magnificent the colours were or the structure of the dish, or how yummy it looked. You know, you could have had the most delicious food and it looked that way in the restaurant, but on on Instagram it looks a bit sad. Yeah, they really are thinking about that. If you look in the kitchen, there are these kind of circular mirrors above the cooking stations, kind of like a dentist or a sur- like a surgery. Yeah, um, and so well, shake a surgery. Yeah, <laughs> so they're looking to make sure that what what's on the plate, sort of, they're almost looking at the final photo in the mirror above mm. of what people are going to end up posting, and, and they then, will. And then they, the dish arrives on the table and they're, they're kind of spotlighted. You yeah. Know? It was a bit of a joy to take photos. I thought I'm not, and I'm crappy at taking those photos. Like, like oh, I can take a good photo. Like somehow my phone always gets in the way and there's a massive shadow where no one else had the shadow. The but hand shadow where you get the phone in it. Oh, They made it easy for you. How a restaurant looks is a huge part of the experience. And one of the most striking new openings this year was in Melbourne's former stock exchange. The opulent space has stained glass windows, gothic ceilings, limestone walls, and solid granite columns. It's now home to Rain and Wine Bar LaRue. Broadsheet's Nick Connellan spoke with Jackie Chalinor about bringing the 140-seater restaurant to life in such a time-honoured space, all without glue or screws. 
I've been around for a while now. I can't remember many restaurants that have had this much. Hype's not the right word, but kind of excitement and specialness around them, given that amazing historic building that it's in, the former stock exchange um, on Collins Street. I spoke to so many people who said, I worked around the corner from there, or I knew someone who worked there in the 80s or whatever. It's such an incredible room. And I think maybe the only thing to think about or to be worried about was, is this going to work as a restaurant? with all those hard surfaces and that crazy ceiling and stuff, it wasn't like you guys could design it from the ground up. No, it was, I mean, I guess I got to design the kitchen. I didn't have a huge amount to do with the process and everything that went through with the dining room itself, which was such a huge part of what you see now. Like there's there's so many things behind the scenes that you just wouldn't have even expected to be part of the process, like all the soundproofing and all the thought that went into making sure that that room is actually a warm and comfortable space to sit. Like it was all the back and forth with Heritage Victoria was such a huge process um, that's dragged the project out longer than, you know, we would have hoped. Ideally, it would have been nice to have this joint open a year ago. Um, But I think now- It was worth the wait. Yeah, exactly. So the finished product now was worth every little back and forth that happened throughout the whole process because, you know, even I was concerned walking in there for the first time, wondering how we were going to get the acoustics right and make that room feel warm and cosy. They've hit it on the head. Like you walk in there and it feels like a big warm hug and there's, there's beautiful spaces in the dining room that feel a little bit different. You know, it's not just one square blank room there's little nooks that you can sit in that feel a little bit different there's the bar it's it's such a beautifully warm and inviting space so those solid granite columns the um kind of soaring ceilings the stained glass windows the beautiful mosaic floor heritage victoria wouldn't let you touch any of that right there was no glues no screws no none no of glues, that no screws no nothing <laughs> right so it was just everything had to be placed down on top yeah. So it can be reversed down the track if need be. Basically, we have to be able to clear out in 20 years' time and act like we never stepped foot in there. So everything was built off-site. Um, the, the joiner that Alan Beck have worked with for, you know, the last 10 years based up in New South Wales built everything in his studio and it just got shipped down and placed on top. Um, so that's, that's Alan Beck, Yazbek. The, the owners, the, yeah, owners yeah. yeah. The raised platforms on both sides of the dining room are there so that we could run services underneath. So all the electrical and plumbing is in between that so that we, we couldn't actually drill into the, the the floor or anything like that. So it's all um, it's all basically there stuck on pretty much. All the, the acoustic panels are tension held, like nothing's actually attached to anything in the room basically. Those acoustic panels are very clever. I, mm. I was very impressed by those. So they are a screen printed acoustic panel that looks like the sandstone behind them or sorry limestone limestone yeah if you're kind of not thinking about them or looking for them you don't even really notice them they just yeah. look like the wall i've um, got to stop pointing them out because yeah like people won't notice no and they really work as well the, yeah. the space has got great acoustic Sticking with the theme of creating memorable places to dine, Australian comedian Sushi Mango opened an Italian restaurant this year. No joke. Nick Connellan sat down with the boys to talk about making a restaurant feel like you're going to Nonna's house for dinner. Let's talk about the restaurant on Wygon mm. Street. What's it called? It's called Johnny Vincent Sam's, which are the, the ethnic dad characters of Sushi Mango. The characters that we're most known for are the, these three characters that the ethnic dads are Johnny Vincent Sam. And so, yeah, we, we started a sub brand called Johnny Vincent Sam's that we thought would represent, um, you know, stuff that, uh, 
we had growing up. We've got a, we got a wine as well, uh, dubbed by that name, and um, it just felt sort of natural to move into the 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 food and the food space because we do a lot of humor. A lot of our humor is based on um, food, you know, because being that we're Italian, we link to food and. Um, and we had a conversation with uh, an old friend of ours, uh, Johnny DiFrancesco from 400 Grady, uh, a while ago, and also Danny uh, from Royal Stacks. Maybe five or six years ago, we had we had a conversation, yeah. and it's been in the back of our minds. And yeah, after COVID, we were walking down Ligon Street, and we, we were we were looking at all these empty spaces that were available, and it was heartbreaking because you know that was we've got an emotional attachment attachment to that street being that we're Italian and it's the epicenter for Italians. And um, yeah, as kids, we used to go yeah, we with used to our go families nearly every, every weekend. Nearly we were every there. Saturday, ice uh, creams, pizza. Yeah. You, you used to get the pizza and walk across the road, get the ice cream, walk up and down the street. And that was your night. Yeah. You know? So, um, when we were walking down there, we we're like, oh, this is really heartbreaking to see all this. And, uh, we sort of had, we had a meeting. We're like, hey, you know, remember that idea we had? Let's try and bring something special back to Ligon Street, and um, let's try and uh, come up with a uh, concept that hasn't really been done before, and that's 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 dear to our heart and dear to the culture. And uh, that's what we sort of did. We we put our heads together, and we 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 um we came up with Johnny Vincent Sam's the restaurant, which is now on on Ligon Street. So yeah. yeah. And I think given that you guys are comedians and you're kind of making a living telling jokes, there's naturally probably an inclination that people think this is a joke restaurant. Mm, absolutely. 100%. Mm. It's very clear when you look at the menu that it's not. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah. We talk a little bit first about the look of this place. Who mm. wants to cover that? I've been saying to people that the, the, the restaurant is like a character from Sushi Mango. The restaurant is a character. You can walk in and you can feel like you're in a living room or, or in a, a lounge sushi mango room. video. Or in yeah, a sushi yeah. mango video. The concept video. is based on um, going to your nonna and nonna's house. Mm. It's literally like a, a snapshot back in time, uh, in like the 70s or 80s. Um, and yeah, so we've, we worked really hard with Mitchell and E. They, they designed uh, Grill Americano. Grill Americano. Grill Americano. Chin, and chin, I think, chin, other I think we, they- We don't want to say the wrong one. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they're they're, no, they're they're a very high powered design. Yeah, firm, and they're you know. great. And we sat down with them and we had this concept and we said we don't want it to be kitsch Disneyland. We, we don't know? want it to be Disneyland. We want it to be authentic. Uh, everything that we do and present must be authentic to to the the customer. And they nailed it. You know, mm-hmm. we sort of we went through every fine detail in the, the material that we use, yellow stained glass throughout the restaurant, the carpet, the tiles, the the wood grain, like everything was sort of meticulously yep. put together. What sort of carpet are we talking? Oh, what sort of furniture? And Well, it's, 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 it's nonna's furniture. Yeah. It's, it's that Franco Gozzo style kind of, but Baroque not quite. It's, 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 look, it's home for many. It's the best way I can describe it. The furniture, the, the, the decorations, the, the frames, the plates, the glassware, everything is to simulate that feeling of going home. Even though we all have homes now, it's like our old home. Where it's, it's a very warm, comforting place. And as soon as you walk in there, I do, and everyone says, oh, look at the frame. I used to have that in my kitchen. I look at that clock or look at the carpet or look at the plastic on the tables. And 
the concept in itself, when you think, it, when you talk about it, shouldn't work. But when it came all together, it works fantastically, and it's just a beautiful place to go. Franco Cozzi is a good way to describe it, though. <laughs> I think yeah, half it, the furniture in there is uh, is they, they a lot of a lot of the picture frames too. We we sort of made sure that we pick the right ones. You know, like there was always the Last Supper, or there was a crying boy, or the lady. There's a lady on the tree that everyone had in their house. You know what I mean? Or, or a fruit painting of some sort. So you look around, there's a lot of doilies around. There's the, the doily over the, the curtains. Uh, like Andrew said before, the plastic on the tables with the doily under it. It was just, and the carpet is, it's maroon, but it's got these patterns through it. You know what I mean? And, and yellow stained glass everywhere. I yeah. say it's, it's so ugly that it's beautiful. That's yeah. what it is. That's yeah. the best description. That's the best description well, for it. We, I it wonder took if- us ages, like even just to put the knife and fork on, the, the wooden knife and fork and the, the whole wall with the plates on it. Took us two weeks to figure out how we wanted it exactly. I wonder if um, a few first generation people are having this moment where they're feeling nostalgic about their childhoods. Mm-hmm. There is another restaurant that just opened in Brunswick, Madonna Electric. Yeah, which right. Also has this Rococo Franco Cozzo vibe going on. Uh-huh. And uh, it's not, you know, parody or any of that. It's a, a genuine first generation Italian bloke who who was feeling nostalgic about his childhood. So, Absolutely. Mm. And that's what we've had. We've had like I've I've been in the restaurant and a guy was crying in front of me because his mother just passed away and this just reminded him of his mum. So it was that mm. that sort of when that sort of stuff happens that's uh yeah people are getting emotional they are there, which, is, which is which is kind of a bit like job done. Over in Sydney we're looking forward to a new nightclub that'll have a free nightly live music program which if you're listening from anywhere else in Australia or around the world isn't something you find on every street corner in the city. James Thorpe, the CEO of Odd Culture Group, came into the studio this year to tell us about Pleasure Club, the first venue in Newtown to get a 4am license in the last 100 years. James tells us about his commitment to free live music and making sure all his venues are poker machine free. I always tell this story in the context of of this project because um, it's Newtown and King Street in particular is quite close to my heart in my hospitality career. I worked uh, as the manager at the Newtown Hotel before I bought my first pub. And uh, when we'd finish our shift, which was at the pub would close at midnight at that time, um, you know, the cohort there, you all want to go for a drink together. And we used to be sort of placed in this dilemma um, at that time where you can either go up to the Mali bar and have sort of like a vodka lime soda spilt in your lap on the side of the dance floor. Which is sometimes a great Which time. Which is really fun sometimes. <laughs> but if you've just done like a 10-hour shift, it's not always <laughs> how you want to spend your your um, your time sort of blowing off steam afterwards. Or you can sit in a bright gaming room, basically, um, because Newtown, um, for the beautiful entertainment precinct that it is, it's blessed with many, many pubs and not very many bars. Um, in fact, I think it has the highest density of hotel licenses in New South Wales, but barely any small bars. Um, in fact, it, well, there weren't any at that time. I think there are only um, sort of two or three small bar licenses on the strip in comparison with, you know, I think there are 12 or 13 hotel licenses and over two, 200 restaurant licenses on that strip. So we wanted to com- to create a space with Pleasure Club uh, when we saw the space pop up that offers just something different in those late time hours. And that's kind of 
a passion of the group and a passion project of mine, um, certainly with Opening Odd Culture, the, which is a one-hat um, casual dining restaurant on King Street, which had the first 2 a.m. development consent at that time. You know, the concept of a one-hat casual fine dining restaurant being open that late is sort of confusing, especially in a Sydney context. Like I know in Melbourne, you know, dinner sort of starts later for some reason than it does That's in Sydney. right, yeah. It can be really <laughs> challenging to find dinner after 10pm anywhere in Sydney. And what about the live music? Do you have an idea of what kind of bands or what kind of entertainment you're going to be putting on? So what's been important to us is seeing Pleasure Club in the context of the Duke, which has a really successful live music roster. Mm-hmm. Um, the Duke is known for higher intensity um, bands. So, you know, doom metal, hardcore rock, loud, loud music. Loud, definitely. Large numbers of members <laughs> in bands, yeah. like big stage, big dance floor. So we aren't committing to any particular genre as we've sort of released, but the the sort of acts that play at Pleasure Club will be sort of lower intensity, lower member, so duos, twi- trios, There'll be a beautiful baby grand piano on the stage. So it, it will be quite different to what we do at the Duke. But what sort of um, sort of brought it on is just the sheer amount of local acts that we have in Sydney. Like our inboxes just overflow with requests from artists to play. There are so many artists and such few live music venues in New South Wales, as we've seen through recent data that the government's released. Sydney is trailing massively behind Melbourne in just spaces for live artists to play. And Mm. that's a big commitment that we've made that we want to find a space to showcase all these amazing artists. And as Um, you said, it'll be free. Will there be be any ticketed events at all? No, none. No. It's something that's really important to us across the whole group. Mm. We like pubs. So obviously our our advent um, was through pubs. Mm -hmm. We're big believers in pubs as like a social meeting place. And we don't think you can achieve that when you charge for tickets. Uh, Similarly with bars, we believe in our venues being free and open to all sort of at all all times. Um, um, But we're really passionate about free live music Mm -hmm. and we feel like in our venues that do it, we've achieved a business model that can sustain that, which is really exciting. And all without poker machines. Yes. So I would love to talk to you about this because you wrote a an opinion piece for Broadsheet about how Sydney, our pubs are shit. And, you know, that was that was a strong, bold statement, but it comes from a place of wanting to make sure that we have a pub, a community hub that doesn't have gambling as its crux. Yeah. I mean, that piece, for the record, I don't objectively think that Sydney's pubs are shit. Certainly I, I own, you know, three of the best ones, I would say. It's just Sydney. a really good headline, was it? it? It was trying to highlight what I think is a business case for getting rid of gaming machines. Mm-hmm. I think the moral argument's really well established in the community and certainly yeah. looking at the response to that piece and others that mm-hmm. I've written and just the broader sort of sentiment um, around that sort of media storm that seems to have died down after the election, I guess, um, is that people know that we need change. Mm -hmm. Um, but there is, there is more than just a moral reason to get them out. They actually do, um, create a third profit center that, 
unfortunately, business doing what business does will will make other profit centers subservient to it if um, if it's lucrative enough, and it certainly is. There's also um, just on the live music piece um, briefly. There's a strong argument to say that when Paul Keating um, uh, introduced poker machines into pubs in the 1990s, the spaces that they took up, you know, all of these pubs suddenly need to find, find they needed to find a space to put all the machines. And mm. the room that was taken was sort of the, the spare room off to the back, which usually was the room that was used for live music. Certainly the, the stage at the Duke was built right smack bang on top of the old gaming room mm. on plans from council. Um, and uh, earlier in my career, every, every pub I worked at, the gaming room was the old band room, mm. you know, super mm. sad. It is um, sad. That sort of had the effect of making live music even more peripheral. Um, which I, I sort of argue in that piece is, has contributed to the situation we've found ourselves in. Bridging the gap between the economics of running a business and keeping your people happy and healthy is a big topic for local business owners. And there are lots of ways to go about it. One of the big ideas that has been successfully adopted by Melbourne's Hector's Deli is moving to a four-day week. Co-founder Dom Wilton sat down with Broadsheet's Catchavactyl about being the first hospo business in Australia, making this big decision for their team. So where did the kernel of this idea begin? And was it something that you guys kind of, you talked about it one day and then you thought, well, this is a no-brainer? Or did it kind of trickle in over, over time? Good question. <laughs> well, we started the conversation when I arrived and it was just like any idea. It was a off-the-cuff remark and it started off by saying there's so many businesses out there, particularly retail, the corporate world, internationally, that are doing a four-day work week. One day maybe we'd be able to do it. And we sort of stopped and we went, hold on a second, why can't we? What, what, is, what, are, the, what are the limitations that why can't a hospitality business be able to do it? And as far as we know we're one of the first, if not the first, in the hospitality business in Australia to be able to launch this successfully over our network, which is really exciting. And that idea was coming about one part operationally to understand the nuances of how to open and close and whether our um, operation will allow for it, which is you know the, the part and parcel of building a structure in any business. But primarily when we talk about um, including our people and making sure that every single part of our business is considered in relation to our people is that we need to find that balance of lifestyle and days off. And then and it folded from there. And I think the that conversation started when then was a, a yin to my yang dom going in every second day, when are we launching, when are we launching, when are we launching? So mm. to confirm, so it's a four-day work week paid at five days. That's how Correct. it works. Yep. Yep. Full 38-hour week, which is condensed over four days. It's not mandatory. The team can opt into it as well, so opt in and out of it. We suspect that, um, well, first and foremost, everyone has wanted to get involved with the process and the project, um, and we would hope that it stays a part of our DNA forevermore. It's not a trial phase. It is not here for a short period of time. We've backed ourselves into the ability to go and execute it for the long term. It's something that when you're out recruiting or people are coming to work for you, that's something that you can offer them, which maybe, let's say... 99% 99% of the hospitality industry can't. 100%. Yeah, we know that it's a it's an initiative that will attract great people. Uh, we know we've got some really talented people internally already. So one 
reduce turnover and making sure that we can hold on to our already great people um, and give them the training and the resources. Every hospitality business out there struggles with turnover and staff retention. Every single, there is no one exception to that. Some do it better than others. Mm. And our ability to put this initiative in is the first part of hopefully another few projects that are in the pipeline to be able to create awareness around making sure that we put people in front of our business. It's not just working hours that are leading to a sense of burnout or dissatisfaction in the workplace, though. There's feeling seen, feeling safe and feeling supported. That's where the recently launched Minds on Place comes in. The startup launched to help employees and business owners with mental health workshops, advice on burnout and tips for the small things that make a big difference, such as adding your pronouns to your email signature. Sebastian Passanetti sat down with Katja Vactel about celebrating diversity in the culinary world and how they've helped Melbourne hospitality businesses approach difficult topics with care. So you launched Minds and Plus in April. Yep. How's the response been? The response has been so nice, actually. We um, weren't really sure how it was going to be received, especially being two people of colour. I'm queer and I've been... Anytime I've spoken about this kind of stuff in space, it's always met with such resistance. Mm. I feel like something's shifted in the industry and everybody's really wanting this support. And as you know, it's a tough time for everybody in every restaurant right now. So having external people that can come in and provide this kind of support and education has been received really well. Maison Plus in the culinary world means to essentially set up a section or set up a station. You get taught that in culinary school. And we kind of wanted to have a pun or a play on words. Yeah, we decided to name it Minds on Plus to essentially represent setting up your mind or um, prepping your mind or well-being in a workplace. So when you talk about prepping the mind and the fact that Minds on Plus is going to be a place that helps helps you to prep your mind, are you talking about prepping the mind of the staff or the business operator or is it both? It's actually both. Um, we've come up with a business model that addresses both the issues that the operators and business owners see, as well as what the employees are asking for. So to get into it, we start with the process. We start with a survey where we administer it to both, again, the operator business owner and then all the employees. Um, We collect that data and then we cross-reference it and show them to both of the parties. Um, As a business owner, I always go into these kinds of things being like, I know exactly what my staff need and what they want. And then what they tell you is something totally different because you're not really on the ground seeing the biggest issues within the team. So we thought that was the perfect place to start, collect that data. And then we um, assess their points on a traffic light system or assess the data um, to what we think would be critical and where they're in the green and then anything in amber. And then we offer workshops based around that, which we bespoke make with the people we've partnered with. I'm assuming when you present back to the operators or the business owners, I imagine there's some surprise there because it's it can be really difficult as the staff member to articulate how you're feeling and to feel safe enough to do so. So I assume some of the survey responses that come back are really surprising for the operators. Yeah, I mean, we have set up the questions in the surveys to kind of be general without it getting too personal. Mm. We're not therapists and we're definitely not trying to highlight the bad areas of the business to then hold people accountable. It's actually to empower the rest of the team again to feel supported and have that education. Mm. But yeah, there's definitely been times when operators have come in and they're like, we have multiple queer people and then 
when we administer the survey and ask those queer people how safe they feel if there's LGBTQIA plus policies in place or if pronouns are part of their email thread or just these little 1% of things, Mm. um, these business operators are normally quite shocked. And we like to send it in an email without having to be in person with them when they get those results because I think it's important they are in their space when they receive that news. Mm. Again, we try and make it really clear that this is not like a blaming process. It's just more about how we can best support to create that environment. Yeah, education and and again, giving people tools. What are some of those single workshops that people have really been drawn to? So mental health first aid, mental health is a huge, Mm. it's almost been every um, inquiry at the moment. Um, Mental health month is right now. So how we've been hot with mental health stuff. We've Mm. just done a burnout workshop with Carlton Wine Room, and I know they wouldn't mind being spoken about because of how powerful and impactful that session was. Also did Mental Health First Aid with Trader House, so the people at Gimlet and that group, and they received it so well as well and have now inquired about further trainings for the rest of their team. I think exactly what you said before, these places just want the information and the support, Mm. and I think we've moved past the point of blaming each other now, and it's just like, how do we collectively move forward because the industry is on its knees begging for help. Sebastian's company is making such a big impact already. It's great to see. Another local company who's flipping the script is male skincare brand Stuff. Founder Hunter Johnson chatted with Katja about the rise of toxic masculinity and seeing an opportunity to freshen up the space with his brand. Plus, he shares why he's actively introducing positive role models for men, including promoting authentic representations of men in all of his marketing campaigns. So let's go back to that, the blood, sweat and tears and starting stuff. Why did you think the time was right to start this brand? What did you think was missing from this industry? And why did you think you could do it? I think we'd start with the culture we're in. I'll just start with the statistics. So mental illness is in a really precarious place right now. And if I put a a masculine lens on that, uh, suicide's the biggest killer of men under the age of 45. So not drink driving, not overdosing on drugs, not cancer, but actually themselves. And then if you look at the other side of the picture, more than one woman every week is impacted by male perpetrated family violence. And if we look at the common theme behind that, stuff in the belief systems, the worldview, or the intergenerational trauma that men have inherited or been exposed to that then comes out in their relationship to themselves or their relationship to others. And a lot of the systems we have to deal with, whether it is mental health, family violence, you know, relationships, are very much geared around crisis management. So we wait till something goes wrong and we throw our money at a symptom. And for me, it just didn't make sense why we weren't going positive and preventative. And the other side of that is we know that the script of masculinity that many men have inherited from our you know, fathers or grandfathers is comp- almost completely redundant today. And what I'm, just to be clear, I'm not saying we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater and throw away all our favorite masculine traits, but there is an invitation for us to develop more range in our masculinity, to be stoic and strong, but also to be raw and open and vulnerable and ask for help. And I really saw over the last, particularly the last kind of five or six years, it's been this like hot pot of change. We're really at an inflection point. And I think we only need to look at significant cultural moments like the Me Too movement, Donald Trump in office, Barnaby Joyce, like the list goes on, Harvey Weinstein, um, and very little going on at a positive perspective or an early intervention perspective. And so for me, there was a huge opportunity using um, consumerism, brand, culture Mm. to do something really unique and similar to how the 
Remember the Dove Real Beauty campaign, women all shapes and sizes, just kind of blew open the space for the, the female customer? There's nothing for men. It's super old school, very misogynistic, very traditional. And we just saw it as an opportunity to kind of freshen things up. And I was very lucky. I've been running a charity for the last uh, nine years, which really works with young men around their emotional intelligence. And be exposed to tens of thousands of young Australian men, I just saw that they were desperate for positive role models and a new way to be that uh, empowered them. And that's really important. The Man Cave, which is where you've been encountering and working with young men about how to address these issues of toxic masculinity before they become a problem. One of the things you said to us in a story when, when Stuff first launched was that you would work with these young men and it would be a really positive, amazing experience. And then you'd send them back out into the world where they'd go and watch TV that night and that's, and then they were faced with all that very old school, outdated approach to what masculinity is and should be. So stuff became a way, as you said, through kind of product to introduce more positive role models. So for those who don't know stuff, tell us about it. What's the branding like? Who are the people that you're using to get it out into the world? So Stuff is a, yeah, we'll say a purpose-driven men's grooming brand. So purpose-driven meaning that the it has social impact at its DNA, so it's of service to the community, but it's also a business that wants to succeed in a for-profit world. It started after being running programs with Man Cave with tens of thousands of young men and just seeing a huge wide open space to disrupt, you know, the, the Lynx Africas that have been there for years and, you know, the advertising, which we kind of giggle about, but, you know, guys spray themselves and gorgeous women come chasing and it's like, okay, that's kind of funny for a moment, but let's just slow down and look at the subtle objectification that starts to begin Mm. as a 12-year-old boy gets his first can of, you know, Lynx Africa. Mm. We also know that guys are incredibly brand loyal, so they'll stick with something for a long time just because it works, it's cost-effective, it's easy and it's functional. So we just saw a, a massive opportunity to kind of be more vibrant and fun and playful and appeal to guys' strengths rather than their deficits or just kind of perpetuates to some old school tired narratives. And how we set it up, even with the name, we wanted it to be super simple, uncomplicated. We wanted it to be just everyday men's grooming essentials. Um, but at the same time, use our, our kind of advertising or our storytelling to really have some fun, be a bit silly, have a real balance of what I'll say is like banter and depth. And that's where I think people, but in this case, like men are at their best when they have that range where they can drop into the deep, you know, authentic conversations, but can be silly, funny, and and not take it all too seriously. And all of our, I'll say our talent, because they like to be called that, are actually our man cave facilitators. So men who work in high schools across Australia, and they range from, you know, people of First Nations backgrounds to former refugees to former child soldiers to hipsters to you know former sports players but they really represent the diversity of masculinity and so it's nice to have the like authenticity infused in the dna of the business and yeah we're a b corp which is you know the highest standard of social and environmental responsibility a business can have and we're really just looking to knock out some of those old school uh, conglomerates to be something more refreshing and, and modern Where Hunter Johnson is creating a space that feels authentic and positive for men in the health and well-being sector, Sydney sommelier Georgie Davison-Brown is on a mission to bring more women winemakers to the menu at Wallara restaurant Chiswick. She really wants to promote women in her field, and she gives a shout out to one wine crush in Beechworth, who helped her commit to her current life as a professional wine drinker. You're quietly making sure that there are as many women winemakers or female identifying winemakers on the menu at Chiswick. Tell me more about that. I just think 
as in so many industries, female representation is just completely underrated. And because historically as well, women who maybe had ideas but just historically couldn't patent those ideas, they had to be under their husbands' names. And, you know, that's not as much the case today, but there's still so many wineries and wines that we drink and spirits and other ideas that we, you know, use in our day-to-day life that was invented by a woman and you just wouldn't know. You know, you've either grown up around it and it's just, you just don't think anything of it. But I just, I really want to get that representation out. You know, it's such an incredible industry to be a part of. Are there any women winemakers doing anything differently that you would like to shout out? Tessa Brown from Vigneron Schmelzer and Brown, probably my biggest crush. She's truly incredible. There is so many people that I would love to shout out. But Tess, I met actually when I was working at Lume. Um, I left my previous job two days before I officially resigned to go and do a three-day vintage with her. And I got on a bus from Melbourne to Beechworth for three, three and a half hours or something, arrived in the middle of the night. uh, And I just had the most incredible time. She's so generous with her knowledge, with her time, with her wine. She's meticulous, brilliant. She heroes other people. She's just so cool. I I am obsessed. (laughs) Is she on the menu? Yes. We're pouring her Pretablanc. So her and her partner, Jeremy, make the wines. They've got uh, Austrian and German heritage, and there's a wine coming from Vienna in Austria called Gemischtesatz, which is basically an aromatic white blend. I think it directly translates to aromatic Venetian wine or something, Uh, but it can have up to like 13 different varieties in it, maybe more, and they've chosen to do four varieties coming from the Whitlands, so King Valley, High Plateau, very cold in Victoria. So there's Pinot Gris, Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling and Silvana, and it's just so yum. And it goes so well with so many dishes that we have at Chiswick. So it's really great. And that's a wrap. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Broadsheet Around Town's summer series. We'll be back in the studio soon. Have a lovely summer break. Chat soon.